Good evening, saints. Welcome to the Whole Duty of Men podcast. You are listening to Work It Out, and I'm your host, Fiona. Uh, in tonight's episode, we are looking at message three out of seven, and that is the message to the church of Pergamos. This message is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Uh, let's read it together. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat them sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight them, will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. 
To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. The Church of Pergamos is sometimes known as the Compromising Church or the Politically Correct Church. The name Pergamum slash Pergamos means height or elevation. The literal city of Pergamos stood on an elevation of 1,000 feet, hence its name. This was a period of church history when Constantine, the Roman Emperor, supposedly converted to Christianity, making the Christian religion popular or elevated. And with Constantine's conversion, many pagans joined the church. These new converts came from a background of idolatry, and thus they brought idolatry into the church. And this was Satan's plan. In the previous phase of the church, he had attempted to obliterate Christianity by persecution, but this plan was counterproductive, so he came up with a new plan. Let us read from the Great Controversy, page 41, paragraph 3, to find out more about this plan. It reads, In vain were Satan's efforts to destroy the Church of Christ by violence. The great controversy in which the disciples of Jesus yielded up their lives did not cease when these faithful standard bearers fell at their post. By defeat they conquered. God's workmen were slain, but his work went steadily forward. The gospel continued to spread and the number of its adherents to increase. It penetrated into regions that were inaccessible even to the eagles of Rome. Said a Christian, expostulating with the heathen rulers who were urging forward the persecution, You may torment, afflict, and vex us. Your wickedness puts our weakness to the test, but your cruelty is of no avail. It is but a stronger invitation to bring others to our persuasion. The more we are mowed down, the more we spring up again. The blood of the Christian is seed. The blood of the Christians is seed. So this is a very interesting statement. Um, the more Christians were persecuted and martyred for their faith, the more people thought seriously about Christianity and they, they felt that if these people are willing to die for their faith, that means there's something to this Jesus Christ, there's something to their profession. So more people became converted into the faith, hence the counterproductiveness of this particular plan. So because persecution failed, Satan made new plans which would guarantee him success. In today's episode, we'll learn how the church shifted from persecution to compromise. This period of church history extends from 313 AD to 538 AD. Stay tuned. In the days of John, God handpicked seven literal churches that would typify seven stages of church history. The past, the present, the future of the church is all mapped out in the letters to the seven churches. Rebukes, warning, reproofs, remedies, and Satan's strategies all laid bare. 
Tune in to Rugged.Rusty on Mondays at 7 p.m. to see the history behind church history. Welcome back. So let's have a closer verse by verse study of this message. We're going to look at verses 12 to 13. They read, And to the angel of the church in Pegamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. So there are two important things that I would like us to pay attention to. It's the sharp sword with two edges, and then where Satan's seat is. Now for the sharp sword, let's go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It reads, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So Jesus is saying to this particular church that I am the one who has the true living word of God. But we will expound on this later when dealing with the warning given to the church. So the next point is where Satan's seat is. Jesus is saying that this particular church is where Satan's seat is. And to unpack this, uh, we're going to read from a book by William B. Baker. It's titled Less and Penates, pages 232 and 233. It reads, Pegamos was the headquarters of Satan's religion. Christ said to the church, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. When the pagans overthrew Babylon, they gave the inhabitants of the city their freedom. But the Babylonian priests later led a revolt and were driven from the city. The defeated Chaldeans fled to Asia Minor and fixed their central college at Pergamos and took the Palladium of Babylon, the cubic stone, with them. Here, independent of state control, they carried on the rights of their religion. Pergamos, therefore, became the seat of the satanic system of Babylonian mysteries. Historians also reveal that the reason why they were chased from Babylon once the pagans took over is that Babylonians were polytheists. That means they believed in multiple gods. But um, the king of Persia was a monotheist. He believed in one god. So the two religions could not coexist. So when they were chased from Babylon, they now set up in Pergamos. That's how Pegamos became the seat of Satan. The last part of verse 13 reads, And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwells. So who is this Antipas? There is a tradition that Antipas was a faithful believer who was being who was martyred by being put into a brazen bull, like a bull made of brass, and this bull was heated up until it was red hot, essentially baking him to death. So that's one possible explanation of the Antipas being referred to here. 
But Bible scholars have submitted that Antipas in this verse is not referring to just one person, but is representative of all those who are martyred during this time of church history. We're going to read a quotation here from the book Evidence from Scripture and History of the Second Coming of Christ by William Miller, uh, pages 135 to 136. He writes, It is supposed that Antipas was not an individual, but a class of men who opposed the power of the bishops or popes in that day, being a combination of two ways, anti, opposed, and papas, father, or pope. And many of them suffered martyrdom at that time in Constantinople and Rome, where the bishops and popes began to exercise the power, which soon after brought into subjection the kings of the earth and trampled on the rights of the Church of Christ. And for myself, I see no reason to reject this explanation of the word Antipas in the text, as the history of those times are perfectly silent respecting such an individual as is here named. So, yeah, that's, that's how um, scholars understand this particular reference to Antipas. We will be back to continue with more of the study. A butterfly is not originally born a butterfly, it is born a caterpillar. When it wishes to transform into a butterfly, it does not force itself, but rather through a natural process, a miracle of God, it becomes a butterfly through a process known as metamorphosis. This transition is so deep that even the name of the creature changes. What it eats is different. So like we, when we become Christians, our name changes. What we eat is different, what we drink is different, we hang around in different places. We do not force ourselves into becoming Christians, but rather the Spirit transforms us and we see fruits in our lives that reflect Jesus Christ. Love, peace, joy. Paul said, by beholding, we become changed. The Greek word metamorpho, from which metamorphosis comes. By beholding Christ, we become changed like caterpillars into butterflies. Tune into the Whole Duty of Men podcast to listen to already available presentations on the fruits of the Spirit. Verse 14 reads, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast the stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So here, Christ is making a reference to Balaam and Balak. So to understand what was happening in this particular church, it's important that we revisit the story of Balaam and Balak. Balaam was a fallen prophet in ancient Israel who consented to curse the children of Israel under the instruction of a Moabite king, Balak, for a reward. The story is found in Numbers 22-24. The Moabites were terrified of the Israelites because there were many and because of how they had defeated other nations. And we see this in Numbers 22 verse 3. So Balak sent for Balaam to be called so that he can curse the nation of Israel. Three times he attempted to curse the Israelites. 
And three times he blessed them because he was under the compulsion of the Spirit of God. We note this in Numbers 23 verses 19 to 23. Let's read it together. This is after Balak has sorry Balaam has failed all the three times to curse. Like every time he wanted to curse, a blessing came out of his mouth. So he finally said this words. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath as it were the strength of a unicorn. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What hath God wrought? Amen. I like this last verse, that no enchantment uh, or divination against the nation of Israel shall prosper so the next thing we notice after balaam's failed attempts to curse the children of israel is the apostasy of the israelites which led to twenty-four thousand israelites dying under the divine judgment of god let's read numbers 25 verse 1 to 3 and then verse 9 25 verse 1 and Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Remember what verse 14 of Revelation 2 said? It said that they were um, committing fornication. And then verse 2, And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. Still, we find this in Revelation 2.14. Verse 3, And Israel joined himself into Belpor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And then verse 9, And those that died in the plague were 24,000. That's, that's a huge number. And all this because they apostatized. But what happened? Because at the end of verse 24, we see that it's all good. The Israelites are protected by God. Balaam has failed to cast them. But then verse 25, boom. They start to commit fornication with the Moabites. They start to sacrifice to idols and eat the food of uh, sacrifice to idols. So what transpired? The Bible gives us an answer in Numbers 31, verse 16. It reads, Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So whatever led the children of Israel to apostatize, uh, the Bible tells us in verse 16 of Numbers 31 that it was through the counsel of Balaam um, to cause the children of Israel to commit trespass against the Lord. And that's what Christ is saying in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 2 because he says that there are some among you who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak 
to cause a stumbling block before the children of Israel. So this was Balaam's idea. But how did he come to this idea and why? Let's go to Patriarchs and Prophets, page 451, paragraph 4 to 5. It reads, disappointed in his hopes of wealth and promotion, in disfavor with the king, and conscious that he has incurred the displeasure of God, Balaam returned from his self-chosen mission. After he had reached his home, the controlling power of the Spirit of God left him, and his covetousness, which had been merely held in check, prevailed. He was ready to resort to any means to gain the reward promised by Balak. Balaam knew that the, apost the prosperity of Israel depended upon their obedience to God and that there was no way to cause their overthrow but by seducing them into sin. He now decided to secure Balak's favor by advising the Moabites to the cause to be pursued to bring a curse upon Israel. He immediately returned to the land of Moab and laid his plans before the king. The Moabites themselves were convinced that so long as Israel remained true to God, he would be their shield. The plan proposed by Balaam was to separate them from God by enticing them into idolatry. If they could be led to engage in the licentious worship of Baal and Ashtaroth, their omnipotent protector would become their enemy and they would soon fall a prey to the fierce warlike nations around them. This plan was readily accepted by the king, and Balaam himself remained to assist in carrying it into effect. Hmm. This is very interesting and very diabolic. So the lesson we learn from the story of Balaam is that when the Israelites were obedient to the word of God, God protected them, but when they became disobedient by mingling with idolaters and committing fornication with them, they easily fell. Notice how Satan then employed the same strategy he used with the Israelites to infiltrate the Church of God. Let's read The Great Controversy, page 42, paragraph 2 to 4. Paragraph 2 reads, Satan therefore laid his plans to war more successfully against the government of God by planting his banner in the Christian Church. If the followers of Christ could be deceived, and led to displease God, then their strength, fortitude, and firmness would fail, and they would fall an easy prey. Here now we are looking at the church of Pergamos. Um, it continues to read, The great adversary now endeavored to gain by artifice what he had failed to secure by force. Persecution ceased, and in its stead were substituted the dangerous allurements of temporal prosperity and worldly honor. Idolaters were led to receive a part of the Christian faith while they rejected other essential truths. They professed to accept Jesus as the Son of God and to believe in his death and resurrection, but they had no conviction of sin and felt no need of repentance or of a change of heart. With some consciousness on their part, they proposed that Christians should make concessions that all might unite on the platform of belief in Christ. Let's pay close attention to the statement in paragraph 4. It says that some Christians consented to modify features of their faith, urging that this might be a means to their full conversion. 
And when we look around today, we can see that the church is compromising in the same manner. Worldly music is being modified and sung in our churches under the guise of drawing young people to the church and keeping them entertained within the walls of the church. I recently saw a TikTok video, not very recent, but after the Easter's where um, this particular church, I believe it was in the United States, was performing what sounded like Beyonce's song, um, Diva, but they, they had modified it. The beat was the same, the vibe was the same, they had only changed the lyrics to have some semblance of um, Christianity. But it was just basically the same. So, and if you listen to the song Diva, it has nothing about it that glorifies God. But imagine we take the beat and everything and then we add Christian lyrics to it and we perform it in church during Easter holidays. I mean, the the church service was very interesting. I, I can't find the right word for it, but everything about it looked very satanic, yet it's something that was taking place in church. You can just Google the the video. I'm sure it will come up some way. And the other thing that we see the church doing is the issue of theater. You know, Spirit of Prophecy speaks very much against theater in any form, but now we see theater being brought back and accepted by even some of our church members. So it's clear that Satan is still using this strategy to cause the church of God to compromise. We're going to be reading a few more quotations to clearly understand this doctrine of Balaam that unfortunately was there in the church of Pegamos. It's still in the great controversy. We'll read page 43, paragraph 1, and then we'll skip to page 49, paragraph 2, and page 50, paragraph 1. So page 43, paragraph 1, it reads, Most of the Christians at last consented to lower their standard, and a union was formed between Christianity and paganism. Although the worshippers of idols professed to be converted and united with the church, they still clung to their idolatry, only changing the objects of their worship to images of Jesus and even of Mary and the saints. The foul living of idolatry thus brought into the church continued its baleful work. Unsound doctrines, superstitious rites, and idolatrous ceremonies were incorporated into her faith and worship. As the followers of Christ united with idolaters, the Christian religion became corrupted and the church lost her purity and power. There were some, however, who were not misled by these delusions. They still maintained their fidelity to the author of truth and worshipped God alone. And then page 49, paragraph 2, it reads, Little by little, at first in stealth and silence, and then more openly as it increased in strength and gained control of the minds of men, the mystery of iniquity carried forward its deceptive and blasphemous work. Almost imperceptibly, the customs of heathenism found their way into the Christian church. The spirit of compromise and conformity was restrained for a time by the fierce persecutions with the church endured 
under paganism. But as persecution ceased and Christianity entered the courts and palaces of kings, she laid aside the humble simplicity of Christ and his apostles for the pomp and pride of pagan priests and rulers, and in place of the requirements of God, she substituted human theories and traditions. The nominal conversion of Constantine in the early part of the 4th century caused great rejoicing, and the world, cloaked with a form of righteousness, walked into the church. Now the work of corruption rapidly progressed. Paganism, while appearing to be vanquished, became the conqueror. Her spirit controlled the church, her doctrines, ceremonies, and superstitions were incorporated into the faith and worship to the faith and worship of the professed followers of Christ. And the last quotation, uh, Great Controversy, page 50, paragraph 1 reads, This compromise between paganism and Christianity resulted in the development of the man of sin foretold in prophecy as opposing and exalting himself above God. The gigantic system of false religion is a masterpiece of Satan's power, a monument of his efforts to sit himself upon the throne to rule the earth according to his will. Hmm. That is that is something. So we're gonna move on to study the the part about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Remember, Jesus Christ was uh, rebuking them for two things, those that hold the doctrine of Balaam and then those that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, we discussed it in detail in an earlier episode when we looked at the message to the Church of Ephesus. So if you want to understand more about it and haven't listened to that episode, please go back and listen to it. I want us to notice something here, though. In the message to Ephesus, Jesus commended the church for hating the needs of the Nicolaitans. But now in this message to the church of Pergamos, the members no longer hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Some are now holding the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So the church has definitely compromised. Once upon a time, there was a majestic king who lived in the most glorious of all lands, the very highest of heaven. Beyond the borders of that land, there were millions of extraterrestrial planets teeming with millions of glorified beings and angels as heads over those planets. But the very highest of the angels, a seraph angel, a cherub angel, Lucifer, decided to lead a rebellion against this majestic king and led multiplied millions of angels down with him. He was cast to the earth where he continues his warfare recruiting multiplied billions of souls down to hell with him. God, on the other hand, recruits his soldiers equipping them with the word as their sword in this warfare, a means to win the battle. It is both a defense and a spectacular offense. Get equipped with your sword in the battle only on this podcast. Tune in to Work It Out with Fiona Mondays at 7 p.m. Come get equipped for eternity. Okay, let's move on to verse 16. It reads, Repent or else I'll come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus Christ is saying that he will fight against them with the sword of his mouth. The them that he is referring to here are those that hold the 
two doctrines we just discussed, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam. Earlier, when we started the episode, we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the sword in Christ's mouth represents the word of God. So Jesus is threatening to fight off um, these false doctrines with his word. We're going to read a quotation here from Letters and Manuscripts, volume 19. It reads, There will be raised up faithful witnesses who will bring forth the words of truth, sharper than any two-edged sword. Their words will bring in many souls to become true converts to the truth, and men and women will go forth proclaiming the very message for the last test to the world in contradistinction to the party who say they are Jews, but they are not. Amen. And then verse 17, we now get to the promise. It says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Jesus promises the overcomers two things. First, hidden manna, and then secondly, um, a white stone with a new name written on it. We're going to start off by looking at the hidden manna. And to do that, let's read together Deuteronomy 8 verse 16. It reads, Who led thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. So the context of this verse that we just read um is the exhortation that Moses is part of the exhortation that Moses gave the children of Israel um, before they would, would go into the promised land. So we, they were in the wilderness and Moses was reminding them of their wilderness experience that God is the one who fed them. And then we move on to read another text from Revelation 12 verse 17 sorry it's verse 14 and not verse 17 and to the women were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent Deuteronomy 8 16 tells us of how God fed the Israelites with manna in the wilderness. In John 6, Jesus teaches that he is the bread of life that came from heaven, that the manna symbolizes himself being the very God of being the very word of God. So manna represents the word of God. And then Revelation 12 14 prophesies of the church of God fleeing into the wilderness for a time, times, and half a time or 1,260 prophetic days, which using the day-year principle is 1,260 years um, to escape the persecution it would face from Satan. These 1,260 1, years of persecution extended from 538 A.D., to 1798 AD and are sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages. And this period began at the end of the period of the Church of Pergamum and the start of the period of the Church of Thyatira, 
which we will look at in the next episode. So the overcomers of the church of Pergamos would flee into the wilderness during the dark ages and Jesus promised to feed them there with his word. You will understand this promise more as we delve into the church of Thyatira because we are going to understand why that period is called the dark ages and why Jesus needed to feed them with the word. So be sure to check out our next episode. And then the last promise is that they'll be given a white stone with a new name. Jesus was here promising to give the church a new character of righteousness if they overcame. White in scripture is used to symbolize purity or the pure righteousness of Christ. And we learn that when Jacob finally repented of his sin of obtaining things by deception in Genesis, God gave him a new name, Israel, to mark and celebrate his new righteous character. Amen. So we have come to the end of our study on the Church of Pergamum. I hope that you have been blessed by this study. I have certainly been blessed. I have learned a lot. May God help us all as we study these messages to learn from the history of the churches what we um, ought to be aware of in our present journey as Christians and the things that we need to be putting in practice. Enjoy your evening. Good night.